Steven Spielberg in top form, sexy 90s scientists, CGI-ish dinosaurs, a sketchy corporation, and an adventure movie turned Universal Studios horror fantasy. It's the original. It's the goat fed to the T-Rex. It's Jurassic Park. Welcome to Jurassic Pod, a podcast 65 million years in the making. In this show, we will excavate, theorize, and decipher the evolution of the Jurassic Park films and their fandom. My name is Luke Ferris. I'm a writer and podcaster, and with me on this epic adventure is my dear friend and professional engineer, Michael James Wynn. Hi, Mike. How's it going? Great. You're a professional engineer, correct? Uh, not actually. No. No. <laughs> That's an actual test you have to take, and I haven't taken it. All right, we'll edit that out. We, we are recording live at the 30th Street Studios. If you didn't listen to the first episode, please press pause, listen to that, come back. It basically explains the background of the show, our format, and what to expect in the next 10 or so episodes, however long we go. If you'd like the Cliff Notes version, basically, in the first episode, Mike and I were concerned that there weren't enough podcasts in the world talking about movies. So that's really what we what we came down to. There was a big gap in the podcast market of people talking about movies, and we decided to venture into Jurassic Park. All right, Mike, we have to introduce our first ever guest on wow. the show. This is big. First guest. And this is a man in Montgomery, Alabama, Whose basically life is an adventure movie, I, is, I would yeah. say. <laughs> it's basically an adventure movie. JD Alaselha, welcome to the show. Thank you for being on. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm glad I can finally get into this podcast world. You are in the world. Uh, the listeners cannot see you um, because it is a podcast, I'm told. But we're connecting via Zoom and you are in a spacecraft uh, flying around. <laughs> Now, some people might be confused because you actually, uh, unlike Mike, who apparently is not a professional engineer, you are a professional uh, service member in the service of a branch of our military that centers around space, also known as the Space Force. Is that true? That is true. But you're not in a a spaceship right now. It just looks like it on Zoom. Uh, Bad news, boys. Uh, We discovered COVID in space, and so I'm... I'm dealing with it. You're dealing with it. You just shoot it, <laughs> apparently. Oh, my goodness. JD, JD, thanks for coming on. We want to just start out, because there's a lot to get to, because uh, we're talking about 1993's Jurassic Park, the original movie. But I wanted to ask what your first experience with Jurassic Park as a movie franchise, a book, what was the, the origin story for you when it comes to Jurassic Park? So here's the thing, is that... Back when I was a kid, I was very scared. I I was just full of fears. And so the idea of dinosaur movie, especially killer dinosaur movie, just did not excite me at all. I, 
I remember uh, going to the Lost World in theaters with some family friends, and I couldn't even get through half of it. Like I had to, I had to leave the. Oh, it was a full leave. Was, it was a full leave. Yeah, theater. it was a full walk out, walk out the door kind of thing. Wow, that's that's pretty remarkable to have that kind of experience with with Jurassic Park. So, how old were you, JD? This was last month. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think I was like, I think I was like seven or eight years old. I forget. I forget when the movie came out, Lost World specifically. But I, I was pretty dang young. So um, did you? Do you eventually overcome your fear and, and come back to Jurassic Park and just th- these kind of movies, or have you stayed away from like creature, monster, scary films? Uh, I'm always a fan of of facing your fears, so slowly but surely I've been I've been working through my long list, including dinosaur movies, horror movies, things of that nature. So, I, I especially like last night I was watching the movie and thinking like, wait, I found this scary as a kid. I mean, it's <laughs> exciting, it's thrilling, there's danger, but I realized like, oh, this is <laughs> the me now doesn't really think this is as scary as the me as a kid did. Yeah, it's really interesting that you bring that up because it is it is a scary movie, but it's not necessarily a horror movie or a slasher movie. It's an adventure movie first, but I'm glad you could could overcome your fears and and join us on this adventure today. Before we dive into the movie, JD, we're going to do a tradition uh, on this show, and this comes from uh, a podcast that I listen to called The Big Ones. We're going to do a tradition where we make the guests do the work. So I have sent you some some business copy that you're, I'm going to have you read off for our listeners. Frankly, because I'm a little lazy. But whenever you're ready, go ahead. <laughs> hey, delegation is the key to leadership. All right. Hey, guys, if you like what you're listening to, please subscribe, rate, and review the shows so more Jurassic heads can discover us. Jurassic Pod is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Our logo was designed by Josie Till. You can learn more about her designs on Instagram at Posey underscore designs. Our intro song is via RB Media on YouTube. You can get involved in the discussion on future episodes by contacting Luke directly via email at LukeHFerris, F-E-R-R-I-S, at gmail.com, or on social media at LukeHFerris. You can also visit www.jurassicpod.com to listen, learn more, and get involved. No dinosaurs were harmed in the making of this podcast. Ah, oh, JD, that was perfect. You are you're a pro, man. You, you I learned so down. much about the podcast. <laughs> listening to you read that, <laughs> it's all new, all new to Mike. <laughs> well, gentlemen, now that we have the business uh, taken care of, thanks to JD, we have to get into the film Jurassic Park. So let's dive in to one of the greatest adventure movies of all time starting out with some some scary stuff i think it was interesting that jd brought up the fear based part of what jurassic park is because it kicks off right away with the raptor cage now now what were your guys's uh reactions to the raptor cage um because it really sets the drama high stakes right away I remember my first experience with it was probably similar. Like it was kind of scary. I mean, it's, it was probably shot on a soundstage, but it's all dark. It looks like it's at night or whatever. And I, I think watching it again, uh, the only, every single time I watched the movie again, I'm only ever reminded I had like a Lego set 
of that specific scene and i had like a little lego velociraptor and that like cartoonish characterization or that cartoonish representation of the scene has totally desensitized me yeah, to so that. you're not scared of it I'm not all. scared of it <laughs> you're at just all thinking about it, you're like where is that lego set right exactly jd what about you what were your thoughts on the because this is a big scare right away i mean we get a murder within the first minute of the movie yeah uh to me uh, ironically what's as a military guy what struck me was their their organization like, they were well prepared like they knew they knew that the raptor was going to be a problem and they had the, all, everything set up and ready and yet the guy still somehow gets like caught up in the mess and and you know torn apart basically so, so that was, a- I was like that that far I was like does that say more about the raptor or the fact that like maybe they don't fully understand yet another movie i watched recently a few good men jack nicholas's character he says when we don't follow orders people die so jd are they just not following orders in that scene or no you- it, it, i mean the the hunter dude was giving out instructions by the letter and they were following it by the letter but then the raptor just decides to go buck wild well, and, I, and it was interesting because one thing that I, I, I you talked about this almost being like a military unit because they all had matching uniforms. Yes. And I thought that was interesting. It was a hybrid jumpsuit. It with was a or- sky blue jumpsuit. <laughs> with the orange, orange construction hat, all logoed. And I think this is going to build up a theme running, especially in this first movie, of the Jurassic Park worker outfits and the different variations. And I think this is a, a telltale sign of right away... I mean, branding, Jurassic Park, it's all about it. Even their the workers are branded oh, with construction 100%, helmets. 100% this could have been a James Bond film, Dr. No style. You're so right. It yes. is like like all the, <laughs> all the matching perfect. uniforms. It feels like that. Uh, but then they all go away. Okay, so moving on from, from there, we, we go to an, an, uh, an introduction of a character that's kind of the, the goofiest character in the movie is the lawyer. Um, we see the lawyer um, basically going to meet a guy to talk about um, John Hammond and blah, 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 blah. They see the mosquito. But I wanted to bring up, this guy is in the jungle with a full 1980s business suit. And mm-hmm. like, he's he's on a raft. What, did he think this was a good idea? I, I was completely blindsided by that as well. Because you know, I, I enjoy going out into nature, and I, and when you're in nature, you need to have the right stuff, like the right clothing on. He's and that not lawyer, and he, and he starts to get like he learns, right? So he goes to that area. I think that I think that is like uh, the setting is Dominican Republic, an yeah. amber mine in the Dominican Republic, and he's very clearly not prepared. No, slipping on stuff has unstable footing. Um. And uh, I mean, he gets better, right? I mean, like when he shows up on the on Jurassic Parks I, on the island for Jurassic Park, like he's like I, pants were a bad choice last time. Yeah, so he's a wearing horrible shorts. Idea. I, I learned my lesson. I'm I'm going to wear not dress pants. I'm going to wear shorts. I'm still going to keep my full yes. suit jacket yeah. and tie, but I will add the shorts element because you know I'm a lawyer. Got to keep it classy. And JD, you mentioned that you. You're a big outdoorsman. You've climbed mountains and hiked everywhere, it seems like, in the world. Um, there's a lot of gear in Jurassic Park, and especially when we meet our kind of rough and outdoorsy characters, um, especially Dr. Grant. Uh, I love that kind of first scene when you see him out in 
I think they're in Montana or, or Utah. Yeah, Montana. And uh, wh- wh- how would you rate the um, the, the scientist gear uh, in their preparedness for Jurassic Park? Top marks. It comes down to really to the material that the clothing is made out of, but at least in terms of how they're dressed and, and the types of dress, both at the dig site and in the jungle, uh, in the park, they looked ready to go. Yeah, they're, they're, they are ready to go, and it actually worked out in their favor that they didn't really change their, their, their outfits too much. Before we leave the, the dig site, <laughs> these two characters are really interesting because um, it's implied that they're, they're like together, they're dating, but Mike noticed something at six minutes. What did you notice, Six Mike? minutes in, the, it's, it, I mean, you haven't even seen Alan Grant's face for five seconds, and uh, he gets up, he turns around, and then... Um, Laura Dern's character, Dr. Sattler, um, you know, then they turn around and they start walking back towards, and Alan Grant, that, that man, Alan Grant slides his hand just ever so slightly down, does little butt graze. Little booty graze. Little booty graze. It's very subtle. That's your first indication that these two are not just (laughs) business partners, but they are together. They, They are together. Uh, we move on to, I think, one of my favorite scenes when we first meet John Hammond. What the hell do you think you're doing in here? Hey, we were saving that. But today, I guarantee it. I don't know if he's the antagonist of, of this movie, but he's really the central person that brings all the characters together. What's your impressions, J.D., of John Hammond as a character... He's very charismatic when you first meet him in that trailer with the champagne and he's, you know, making jokes. But what what are your impressions of him as a character? Uh, Charismatic's one word for it, but I'd lean closer to eccentric because eccentric describes a more chaotic personality, I think. Uh, And I'm not 100% sure I would call John Hammond's the the villain in fact it's it's really hard to say if there's a true villain in all of this um we can point to people who cause certain things to happen certain progressions in the in the storyline or or rises in conflict but it's it's kind of it's kind of this weird dichotomy of everyone could be the good guy everyone well not everyone but uh a good number of characters could also be the bad guy depending on the situation. That's so, I'm glad you brought that up because that's so accurate to one of the reasons why we wanted to start this podcast and have this conversation because Jurassic Park is unique in the franchise world where there's not this clear cut line of good versus evil, especially in this first one. In the, in the sequels, you start getting more of the generic characters, but there isn't really a clear cut. This is the bad guy. This is the good guy. You could almost say humans versus dinosaurs are humans versus nature yeah. but man versus nature yeah it's that's all those themes i think play really well together and it makes you appreciate the characters a lot more and and they're more more uh 3d in, in how you see them besides maybe uh some of the like newman and the the hunter guy uh those guys the characters are pretty straightforward yeah there's certainly i mean there's a there's certainly a handful of characters that have qualities about them that um, are well intentioned, but man, but the but it manifests itself in an in an evil way. Like John Hammond, 
his intentions are pure. Like he wants, he's he's not even creating this to make money. He's creating this. You come to find out that he just wants to build something for his grandkids. But, and then Dr. Sattler points out that um, he has no understanding of power or how to control it. And so like, it's like, oh, well that is a very villainistic like quality of not understanding, you know? So, so I, I think you could make an argument that he is the, villain yeah and it's well you bring up a good point mike of that was kind of characteristics and i think it's ironic that we have jd on the episode today because he's serving in the space force which we appreciate jd uh, but there's in your industry i would say there was a very charismatic character that has similar traits that is in charge of tesla that mm-hmm. you could probably compare and contrast with john hammond oh yeah it's uh, Elon Musk is a John Hammond, a Tony Stark type character. It's it, motivations. Honestly, for all we know, we, he could be trying to take over the world or he could just be interested in seeing cool stuff happen. Yeah. I have no clue. Or have people I'm just you know, have, the ride. have a theme park on the moon. You know, that's and that's why it's exactly. interesting because it, it there is that kind of. And I, I think it's a it's a good example of you're you're not just a villain and a good person. You could have good intentions, but also the way you get there causes chaos, which comes later on once we get into the science of Jurassic Park. Uh, let's move forward to probably the most important, I think the most important moment in Jurassic Park history. Cut to helicopter flying to the island. Oh, and we are introduced to. Ian Malcolm, uh, the the most charismatic character in the series, and the Jeff Goldblum laugh, which is a part of our <laughs> intro music, is is comes out into the ether of the world, uh, and we were just gifted with pure pleasure. I I cannot. It never gets old for me. So you two um dig up dig up dinosaurs? Well, try to. <laughs> <laughs> I bring scientists, you bring a rock star. It, ever since we've discovered the the mix, the track of the, you know, the the music version of his laugh, I cannot watch that scene and not have a little part of me die that it doesn't progress into the song. It it, it just it's so good. The beat is there. Yes. It, the beat is there and that's why we used it for our theme song because it's an iconic voice. And it just, it's musical. Yeah. It's, it's, it's gorgeous. It's like listening to a symphony, I feel. Uh, JD, Mike and I were discussing this because we watched this together. There's some sort of history with uh, Ian Malcolm and John Hammond. I don't know if you caught that. Like there's, there's definitely, they've been, they've been at the university circuits or like they've, they've communicated because Mike and I were trying to figure out how much does Ian Malcolm know? How much do you think he knew about Jurassic Park? I don't know. Like he's he's introduced as a as basically the lawyer's consultant or or expert. You know, John Hammond brings in his two experts, and the lawyer gets to bring in Jeff Goldblum. But I I started to wonder if if maybe Malcolm was like an investor or something. Oh, that's a good. That's because a really good point. That's a good point. Speaking of Elon Musk characters, you know, Jeff Goldblum is kind of this like. Uh, maybe like a maybe closer to a Neil deGrasse Tyson, yeah, or a Bill Nye the Science Guy kind of character, so where he's 
you know, in in the in the public eye, he's uh, like a celebrity scientist or celebrity um, mathematician, basically famous nerd. <laughs> Which was we're more used to nowadays, but I feel like in the '90s that was kind of a new newer concept that you would have this like rock star celebrity that had their own podcast or that was on the tonight show which i would love an ian malcolm podcast uh that would be amazing but you also brought up a really good point the whole reason that they're going to the island all comes to do with the business the underwriters of jurassic park so basically the investors are concerned about their investment they want to bring in experts with the lawyer to, to make sure everything is is okay like it's not falling apart and that's the the whole reason they're there and it's really interesting because all those tensions come into play once they get on on the actual island and they see and experience the park. So when they when they get to the island, JD, we have to bring this up with you because Mike and I. This is kind of this part two of the Jurassic Park outfits of the workers. Um, I don't know if you noticed this, but the pilots in the when they arrive, in the the jeeps come up to pick them up, all the workers are wearing pink bright pink shirts in khakis mm-hmm. in Jurassic Park mm-hmm. hats what were your thoughts on those uniforms Dude, my my eye was immediately caught by that but it it ultimately just struck me as these are the kind of workers that are like on the the lowest tier in this park like you know paid maybe slightly over minimum wage plus living expenses just to just to be those greeters or those tour guides or those you know random doers of things yeah like Dis- disney like disney park employees that are but it's weird because it's it's a this is obviously like a research science thing first so like i kind of thought jd you're correct as the, the, these are like the low men on the totem pole but they're also probably like people trying to get their phd in genetics <laughs> and they have to think like, so they're like it's like mike made the joke of like that's their wednesday outfit they have to wear the, the, <laughs> yeah, the, pink the different colors for different days yeah like the, the tuesday is a bright blue wednesday is the pink they're like oh gosh but it must have been it must have been their friday outfit because we know it was the, oh, it was the weekend. weekend so yeah. friday friday <laughs> outfits that are, was their weekend <laughs> it was business casual for them. <laughs> i you make a good point, but I also think that I mean John Hammond was just trying to get the ball rolling as soon as possible. That's like, true. Even though he's he's getting all these consultants and making sure that the board members are happy, he's also like you can see in the intro scenes that like the the construction workers are putting the finishing touches on the buildings. So you know the these khaki pink shirt people could could be you know the the staff on orientation or or themselves just getting settled and things of that nature. That's a good point. They probably were just getting settled because, again, you brought it up. They were painting the outside of the visitor center, which is very Disney because it's not made out of concrete or stone. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a set, basically, and they're painting the set. JD, uh, what are your thoughts on the Jeeps? Are you are you a guy that enjoys a Jeep? Have you ridden in a Jeep? I know Mike's driven a Jeep before. Oh, yes. Do you like Jeeps? I've, I've ridden a Jeep. I haven't driven a Jeep. Um me, I like the closed enclosed system, just because, especially like when you, you're taking a jeep out, you're doing some outdoorsy thing. Your potential to get rolled over or to get into some sort of accident, and the last thing I want is get thrown out of that thing onto some rocks. Yeah, especially if you are in Costa Rica or on an island where it rains every twenty minutes in mm-hmm. open air air jeeps. I think those jeeps are pretty classic. Mike noticed something that. All the cars in Jurassic Park are numbered, 
we saw when they're they're pulling up to the park there's a number 18 and number 29 yep so we have at least 29 of these jeeps i have a hard time believing there aren't more um but one one of the things luke i didn't mention this to you when we were watching it but you have number 18 and number 29 that show up for the jeeps and then i was i looked at the numbers for the explorers and it was number four and number five so i want to know um like i think the like number one two and three like why why was it not even numbered like why wasn't <laughs> of course this is what would bother you it did bother me because so, what where were the other three cars and why like why was there a train of three cars and not a, yeah why wasn't one two three why was it sequential maybe it, maybe like uh with 18 and 29 maybe 1829 was the year something dinosaur was invented <laughs> Maybe it could be an Easter egg somewhere. <laughs> I'm sorry that bothered you. I'm sure it bothered Ian Malcolm's character as a mathematician. Maybe. Maybe it was chaos theory. JD, I have a question for you and also for Mike. The reaction shot when they first see the dinosaurs, the CGI dinosaurs, which actually I think looks still holds up. Mm-hmm. But obviously that was one of the first times as an actor and director, you had to fake react to a CGI experience. I want to ask you, is there a moment that these characters have that you would have in real life, in your professional life? Like for them, they've been studying dinosaurs their whole life and they see mm-hmm. one in person. They never thought it would happen and they are, they can't, they're losing their minds. Is there something similar in your life, in your professional life that you would react that way? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting that you say that because uh, not only were the characters seeing dinosaurs for the first time these are the kinds of people that desperately wanted to see dinosaurs but had resigned themselves to the fact that they would never see a dinosaur yeah so i guess i guess the best example would be for me making me like a black hole like oh. to hmm. see a black hole interstellar style yeah <laughs> That that would be a mind blowing or a wormhole, equally cool. Aliens. Um, yeah, seeing seeing alien from aliens, seeing a xenomorph, that would be good. Yeah, maybe closer to a wormhole actually, because we know black holes exist. So, but like, a, wor- a wormhole is more the- theoretical. Wormhole is more theoretical. Wow. Yeah, I don't really know what that would be. That's in- a high bar. In my life, I realized I said I set Mike up for failure to answer this question. Uh, mostly because, as an engineer, uh, when we when we want something, we just go and try to make it. I think the best. I think <laughs> I think wow. the, I think the most um, is a perpetual motion machine. JD probably knows what I mean. I have and, no idea what it. And what it's it's mean? a machine that is, that is that like a treadmill? No, a perpetual motion machine Infinite. is something that can power itself based on the power it generates. And the problem with an with a perpetual motion machine is there's always a loss of energy in the system. So mm-hmm. no matter how much energy you can produce, you're always going to lose energy. So you can't. You it, it's just not possible. So that would have to be something something that can power itself based on itself, like a vibranium or something. It's always going to take more energy to to perform something than it can create. Oh, I see yeah. what you're saying. The energy like it takes a, to put into something, it's not going to yeah. equally create something out of it. Yeah, like like a Newton's cradle. Uh, imagine that if a Newton's cradle just never stopped 
going back and forth because eventually a noon's trail slows down because some of the energy gets lost either imparted into the strings or into the the frame of the of the cradle itself but if that kept just kept going back and forth with no loss of energy that would be just like a mind-blowing I've never heard anyone call it a Newton's cradle. Those are the swingy balls to me. Swing, that, sit on top, that, sw- that sit on top of uh, important people's <laughs> desks. Well, that was good, guys. I, I, that was better than I expected. I think for me, it would probably be interviewing Jeff Goldblum. Mm. So uh, pretty similar to what you guys hey, said. Hey, don't sell yourself short, man. That's that's still something that could happen. It, we it, it, we have uh yet we, we haven't contacted those people yet, but there will be a, a request for interview. We, sent. we will try. Speaking of Jeff Goldblum, our, our heroes kind of learn more of the science behind Jurassic Park. We, we, they go into the ride that is very similar to Star Tours in, in Disney World, uh, where they're sitting down. I, I was really re-watching this. It was really interesting to me because this was very much, uh, if you're a 90s kid, this was like watching a 90s educational cartoon. That's really what I felt like. And it's crazy that they put this in a movie to explain the science of the movie. Oh, Mr. DNA, where did you come from? From your blood. Just one drop of your blood contains billions of strands of DNA, the building blocks of life. You know, when you consider how much detail the book shares about how the genetic, the genetics work, it makes sense because you're like, okay, the main question is how did this happen? So the movie needs to be able to explain that, and yeah. this makes the most sense. Whereas in the book... They they don't they don't have to show an educational video like this. They just spend a chapter talking about it. So it it but yeah, I definitely felt like watching I'm just a Bill. <laughs> I I was waiting for the song to start. One thing Mike you brought up is that when John Hammond's introducing himself, introducing himself. Mm-hmm. You when he's standing next yeah, to the video. You asked, does he have to do that for every single tour? Right, every exactly. single tour. I was thinking that same thing too. I I think maybe there's a, like three different versions of it, and he saves that for when he's doing like the high class tours. But it would be really hilarious if John Hammond was like, "Well, I got to get back to work, my nine to five. I got to be itchy." But he almost seems like that kind of a guy where he's like, "No, I need to meet every guest as they walk in." So yeah, it, it, it could work. Uh, there was one line that stood out to, to, to us, JD, that we had never caught before. It's from the it's from the lawyer when they're looking at the scientists. <laughs> and he asks, he asked Hammond, like, are those people auto erotica? <laughs> I, I was caught off guard by that, too. Auto erotica. Overwhelming, John. I. Are these characters uh, auto erotica? No, 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 no. We have no animatronics here. I, I have no, I know a clue. In fact, I meant to look it up, but uh, <laughs> maybe I, you should have. Yeah, yeah, be <laughs> careful. Don't do it on your work computer. <laughs> but I was like, well, auto. So this lawyer, it, it's like a <laughs> another way to say this guy's weird. He's into some kinky stuff. He's a, he for a lawyer who is certified by some bar association. He sure is a moron. He is an absolute weirdo. Uh, we meet the lead scientist uh, who comes back in the later films. I think he's the true villain because he's the one who who made this all happen. Um, we have all this scene. There's so many good lines within when they're actually like when the egg is hatching of the raptor. 
it's really the turn of the movie. And, and I love it because if you watch uh, Jeff Goldblum's performance as Ian Malcolm, he's immediately like, this is, this is messed up. We simply deny them that. Deny them that? John, the kind of control you're attempting is, uh, it's not possible. Listen, if there's one thing the history of evolution has taught us, it's that life will not be contained. Life breaks free, it expands to new territories, and it crashes through barriers painfully, maybe even dangerously, but... Uh, Oh, there it is. There it is. You're implying that a group composed entirely of female animals will breed? No, I'm, I'm simply saying that life uh, finds a way. And that's what, you know, J.D., you mentioned that maybe perhaps the relationship between Hammond and Malcolm is an investor relationship. And this re- reaction by Malcolm makes me think that that's not true. Um, because he's so indignant that Hammond would actually do this, or that Doctor Wu would actually do this, that um, you know, it's just obvious that he's not cool with, you know, th- with this setup. And, and I think maybe JD is correct where he maybe one at one point Malcolm was more connected with Hammond. Mm-hmm. They were either partners or investors, or he was he was more on board. Because he's definitely the the one who pushes back immediately, and he's not caught up in the like the other scientists. They're caught up in in the magic. What Laura Dern's character says, like I was caught up in the power and the majesty of this creation, but but Malcolm being the, being the hero, one knows of the right away. this is this is straying a little bit from the movie. But one of the, when I originally read the books that Crichton wrote. Um, one of the characters that really you wish you had more information on is Ian Malcolm. And in a lot of ways, he is kind of the main character. I mean, he isn't, but he also kind of is. And, um, and I, I just kept thinking like, man, it would be great to have like a prequel or a, or a side book that Crichton would write about Ian Malcolm. But then I just realized it would be so boring because it would just be him sitting in his office arguing with himself over chaos theory. <laughs> you know what? I if Jeff Goldblum played himself as he or playing played Ian Malcolm sitting in a room talking to himself, I would watch that. I would too. I would watch that any day. Uh, a couple more notes here. Um, obviously, the Raptors. It's super foreboding that they're going to play a part. The Raptors are, are sprinkled in through the whole movie, but. Um, especially when you you go out to the cage and the cow is devoured and we meet the hunter I don't even know the guy's name but like oh um basically like the most cliche big game hunter who has super high waisted shorts Muldoon Muldoon his shorts are higher than Lord Dern's shorts I mean yes but- high waisted shorts were invented by Muldoon <laughs> he's he's a great character because he is a one sided character but. I think there's a deeper part of it where like he he either helped with past projects with Hammond. Hammond mentions he had a, a park in Kenya, like a, a kind of a, a wildlife park. But this guy's a, a lifelong hunter and he's just he's so excited. He he he's like foreboding but also thrilled. You kinda think that um you know Muldoon is the guy that Chris Pratt's character would have looked up to. Yes. would have if if Muldoon had been around yeah. this would have been R. the R. guy that um taught everything imparted all of the wisdom to I almost think Chris Pratt's maybe got a Chris Pratt's character has 
a picture of this man in his office it's framed in his office like they're like Baldoon has something named after him in the park in the future yeah probably not the raptor cage <laughs> <laughs> definitely not the raptor cage um we go to a scene that i love one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie is the dinner scene or the lunch scene with the projectors condos Condors are on the verge of extinction. And if oh, I was to no. no, if I was to create a flock of condors on this island, you wouldn't have anything to say. No, hold on. This isn't this is some species that was obliterated by deforestation or or the building of a dam. Dinosaurs uh, uh, had their shot and nature selected them for extinction. I simply don't understand this Luddite attitude, especially from a scientist. I mean, how can we stand in the light of discovery? Oh, what's so great about discovery? It's a violent, penetrative act that scars what it explores, what you call discovery. I call the rape of the natural world. <laughs> From a somatic standpoint, the visuals are gorgeous. There's lighting coming through, um, especially when Jeff Goldblum's talking. You see that projector coming back. He's backlit. It's dramatic. It's intense. But the practicality of having a bunch of projectors projecting across a, a dinner table is horrible yeah if i was you, thinking the exact same if thing. you've ever stared into a projector or like walked past one after a meeting it is awful it is awful yeah it it just quite quite possibly quite literally actually the the worst conditions to to eat with in a group <laughs> setting and have a meeting with <laughs> jd did you notice any of what actually was being projected in the background did you catch any of that Yes, it was like basically future projections for the park, like basically yep. John's propaganda. <laughs> it was, yeah, that's a great yeah. way to say it. And like not great graphs or visuals. Like, no, just not. Not good. even just, any figures listed. That's the, the like one B-roll. pie graph. Yes, the one pie graph that Luke and I focused on for a little bit. It was so just vague. It was a three D. <laughs> pie graph and it had losses versus returns but we paused we paused it and stared at it. we could not figure it out could not figure it out the other one was there was a projection about sports zoos and jurassic that's how they're labeled yeah and that jurassic will outperform the attendance of sports and zoos but like what about like entertainment concerts it's like no sports and zoos sports those are my big competitors also like what kind of like like there's no way jurassic in in the in the movie, the first movie, we don't get in Jurassic World. We see this because the park is developed, but in Jurassic Park, we don't see the infrastructure that they've created and generated to host guests. So the idea that they're going to outperform all of the world zoos and all of the sports in the world, and we haven't even seen the infrastructure, no. or the hotel system, or the transportation system, like like how they're still painting the outside. Yeah, they're still painting. <laughs> Another shade of gray, okay? We just really want that gray to pop. <laughs> All right, so moving on from that that meeting, of course, Jeff Goldblum has some pretty powerful lines. I mean, it gets really deep. Um, one of my favorite lines is... Gee, the lack of humility before nature that's being displayed here um, staggers me. And it, it just goes to the idea that Hammond's pushing, he's pushing. And one thing that I, I brought up when we were watching it, Mike, and JD definitely, and Mike, you both have a lot more experience with this, especially JD with your mom being part of research and being in the research world. 
Malcolm brings up the point of you co-opted and stole all this hard work. Mm -hmm. What were your thoughts about that? And and what what is he actually claiming that Hammond has done? So the best I could interpret what he was saying is that because you didn't work as hard to obtain the level of technology that we're at right now, you don't appreciate you don't appreciate it as much. But I just, I, that's the one thing that just didn't make sense to me. I mean, he's even saying like standing on the shoulders of giants as if that's a bad thing. Yeah. Whereas that's that's kind of as as like a nerd as a as a guy who's grown up in in the scientific world, I that I see that as no problem at all. Like you are supposed to take what other people have learned and apply that to something new. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I personally had no problem with that. I, I didn't see that as a bad thing. And, and I think it, that's a great point, JD, because that's what science is. Science is about, and, and innovation is about building and sharing and, and creating new ideas. But what I think the deeper, there might be something deeper there. And obviously we didn't talk about this, but when um, Newman, that's not his name, but everyone calls him Newman. He's obviously- Nedry. I kept calling Dennis. him Newman in my mind, but it's, it's Nedry. Yeah. Dennis is stealing, he's basically, he's basically stealing- the the dna information from from ingen he's stealing embryos embryos there maybe there's something deeper where ingen quote unquote acquired technology in a way and like to me it goes back like there's a deeper story with malcolm like he knows more about this process than the audience i think the book actually goes i'd have to reread i haven't read the book in about a decade but the book i think does uh shed some light on this um, because I forget the name of the competitor to InGen, but this is a little, this is somewhat brought up in, um, in the beginning when, um, Dennis Nedry's given the Barbasol can and, uh, and he responds by saying 18 minutes to catch up on 10 years worth of research. And mm-hmm. I think that there is a there's very clearly a um, a competitive kind of struggle between these two companies. And I, I got to reread the book on this, but there is there is an issue, an ethical issue that InGen encountered, and it's it's um the movie probably doesn't do it justice because they create Hammond to be a much more charming, charismatic character. But in the book, he is not that way. He's not. Yeah, it's it, it it'll be interesting as the movies go along if there are more threads of that come up. All right, we got to move on uh, to some other characters introduced. Samuel L. Jackson's character as kind of the park the guy in charge of the park. Uh, I don't know systems, um, and obviously uh, we we learn more about the skeleton crew that's running this park <laughs> from a from a back end, like literally wow. two programmers. Right. First rule of programming, like don't have one developer that knows everything. Like that's that's just like the first rule of like growing in a company. Like, come on, like you gotta have more than one developer that knows everything. It's like it's crazy. It's like and obviously they bring up kind of his motivation is he's either not getting paid enough or I think subtly he has like gambling problems. He has money issues. He has money issues. So he's asking for more. Uh interesting that this whole this whole th- trip, this weekend trip, is right during hurricane season. Maybe not the be- the best yeah. best idea. But uh, anything you guys have before we move on to the actual getting in the Ford Explorers and we're on on our way? Yeah, the only thing that um, stuck out to me was the um, 
the fact like you mentioned the skeleton crew typically when you start a park you you hire more staff than you need and then you realize after a year of operations oh we have a lot of redundancies (laughs) whereas in this case hammond has kept keep stating over and over again in the movie we have spared no expense we have spared no expense oh except for the fact that we haven't hired adequate resources (laughs) to run the point about that spared no expense and i think that that will come up a little bit later um from what i remember but yeah it's it's, for a guy that spares no expense he's also pretty tight wadded yeah yeah and that's probably because in some ways he is going rogue on this project. Like they're not making, they're not making any money on this project right now. And that's why the, the, the lawyers there, that's why they want to open as soon as possible. Yeah. They're, they're definitely pushing it for some, for somebody that has spared no expense. It certainly has cost him everything. Yeah. I mean, they got, they got, Ooh, yeah, that's deep. That's deep. That's and And we will, obviously we meet the grandkids. I thought these kid actors were great. Every time I watch this movie, I'm really impressed Obviously, Steven Spielberg is one of the best, if not the greatest, kid directors of all time. But the kids really, I think, are at a new element. There's a deeper thing that I notice more rewatching it now is Hammond mentions that his wife is getting a divorce and that's why the kids are coming down to visit. Mm-hmm. The kids really attach onto Dr. Grant, especially the young boy who's dressed up exactly like Dr. Grant. Uh, but that kind of whole narrative is, is I think... It's one of those things like it's not the whole crux of the movie. Like they don't go into these kids' backstories, but it helps bring a little bit more drama and, and background to why these kids are attached to Dr. Grant throughout the movie. Yep. All right. We're on the Ford Explorers. We're going through the park. People are getting excited. They're not seeing things out the window, which if you've ever been to the zoo or you're I'm sure we all did it when we went to the this zoo. This would be like, a lesson they I don't would have see learned. the animal. They yeah. certainly would have learned. So it did can we talk about the Disney safari ride yeah. at, Mag- at yeah. Animal Kingdom? So one of the most impressive engineering feats in the world is uh, what the Imagineers at Disney have done with the safari ride. It's against animal protection laws to force animals to be in certain places at a certain time. And so you have Disney on their real life ride taking guests through a safari zone where they where they can't guarantee that or they can't force the lions to be in they, this they location. They can't put a goat somewhere. And exactly. Have <laughs> they can't. They can't force the hippos to be in a certain location. So, so what Disney has done and what Jurassic Park's designers should have learned is that um, they have to engineer the environment. And so, in the in the Animal Safari ride, I won't go into all the details, but in the hippo enclosures, they there's a giant lake. Not enclosures. In the hippo space, there's a big giant lake. And there's a deep part portion and a shallow portion. Where do you think the shallow portion is? Well, it's by the, um, it's by where they would be visible. So they've so they've oh. set the hippos up to be over there. And same thing with the uh, with the lions. There's rocks all over the place. So how do you get the lions to sit on specific rocks? Will you heat some of them? And so oh. they have certain rocks that are heated. And then there's different examples of this all over. Which is why this whole concept probably wouldn't work. Because when you're trying to control the behavior of a T-Rex, right. when you don't really know what the behavior of the T-Rex is, because it's just all in theory and post 
research based. Yep. You don't you don't really know. So they're driving through the park. They're doing stuff. Uh, Jeff Goldblum is flirting uh, hardcore <laughs> and just riffing. Um, one of my favorite parts is when he's alone in the car. There's uh, another example. <laughs> See, here I'm now by myself uh, uh, talking to myself. That's that's chaos, dude. Um, then we go to the, uh, was that, I forget what dinosaur this is. I'm really bad at dinosaur names. So Which one? The one that's Triceratops? Sick. Triceratops, that's oh, sick. Oh, the sick one, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, I equate myself as the young girl in this movie who's like, is that a meat-eating dinosaur or is that a... A metasaurus. Metasaurus? Um, we get the big, we get the big pile of dino doo-doo, which is great. Yeah. Um, and, and they kind of, this is where our teams kind of break off. This is where we break off. The storm's coming. Um, anything about the Triceratops that stood out to you? Uh, well, erotica how... <laughs> from Alan Grant. Alan Grant is very excited about the Triceratops. He is, he's, he's a little too excited if you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I I like how Laura Dern's character was is trying to get to the bottom of something that I feel like they it was one of the few plot points that they didn't really touch up on is that like these these dinosaurs are are getting sick and it's not they're not one hundred percent sure why. And she she points out all these plants that um you know the animals potentially might be eating and and getting sick from it. and then you realize like. Yes, they've cloned dinosaurs and recreated them, but can you assume that like modern day plants are going to be suitable for them when they were eating plants from you know millions and millions of years ago? Like, do you have to clone and regrow an entire prehistoric forest in it, order to make sure they have they... in certain spots? I remember uh, very early in the movie when they're in the jeeps. She's holding that leaf and she goes, "This species has been extinct for blah 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 blah." And then. Mike, you pointed this out because, J.D., this is a great... I'm glad you caught this because Mike pointed it out to me a, a little bit later in the movie. They're in the, the control, room. control room and they're like launch sequence... Oh, they're the lysing, it was the lysing contingency. And that you said that's more from the book where basically it's their fail-safe where they don't have this protein. And right. It's why, it's why the whole the whole Triceratops thing is they're sick and everything. Yeah, it's part of it. Yeah, but, but it's not. Again, JD, it is interesting that they bring that up, and I don't know if that's more of an homage to the book, or they needed a way to get rid of Laura Dern's character and bring her back. Um, but it's definitely a deeper part of the whole plot that's not really fully a part of the plot. Yeah, it, to be fair, it's not. That's not a pivotal plot point, but it's more of a sign of the fact that they they the park doesn't have its act fully together no, no, still, right. oh it's the fact also that the dinosaur doctor has to be told by laura dern who just showed up I thought about that, that too. like huh like look at this symptom and look at oh, that look symptom. his eyes are dilated they would are you look at that <laughs> <laughs> oh would you look at that i didn't even know that wow didn't check the eyes wow <laughs> full-on dinosaur doc here <laughs> Uh, he obviously did not not get the memo about the pink shirt too, so there must right, he must yeah. be he must be a higher level. Uh, he didn't do the laundry from the last week. He was like, "Crap, I forgot my pink shirt today." So we 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 our group split up. Um, let's talk about probably the the two most like famous scenes in the movie is the ending se- sequence, obviously in the kitchen with the raptors, and the first T Rex sequence. It's dark. I mean, this I think we stopped talking for a while because we're so enthralled. I mean, the tension that builds is incredible. 
the the obviously the t-rex work the, that whole sequence is just perfect horror intensity tension JD, we wanted to bring something up and get your thoughts because Mike and I... We had a big debate. This is a huge debate and probably the only huge blatant blatant failure failure of the movie. movie. So when you first go to the T-Rex thing, you see the goat. It pops up. They don't see it. They come back. The goat's still there. Mm -hmm. Then they're sitting there. The power goes out, blah, 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 blah. And then that's when the T-Rex starts to come. The goat is gone. The the cords, the electrical cords break. But once they actually are, once the T Rex is on the same level as the as the group, yeah. When they try to escape, they go over the the, the concrete railing, and there's a drop off. Yeah, like yes. a, a sixty foot drop off. So, what is your thoughts? Is was this just a different position, or how did the T Rex get to their level? I was thinking the same thing when this this whole like. They're they're hanging off the side, hanging onto the cords, dangling, and the car gets knocked up over the side. And you're like, time out. This T-Rex is tall, but it's not that tall. So yeah. So Luke Luke brought up a theory that there must be a hill that the T-Rex was on. And I shot that theory down because I said that um, they went out the side of the fence that the T-Rex had clearly come through because that's where all the wires were broken. And yeah, I assumed that the goat was in a different place. The goat was on a slope and then they continued on. No, but Mike's totally right because that the, the car gets knocked through the gap in the fence that was created by the T-Rex. The T-Rex didn't create a new gap. So, so something we, uh, as we continued to watch, cause we paused and we talked about this and we actually, we actually started pantomiming <laughs> like, what if it was set up like this or what? If... It was getting real. We had it. We were almost, we were going to go to a 3d printer and try to do a 3d model. So of later on when, um, when Muldoon and, um, Ellie get out there to, to rescue the kids and to find everybody, obviously Grant and the kids have fallen down to the ground floor. They get down to the car and then back up to the Jeep in surprisingly quick time. And if, and if the Jeep, I, you're jumping ahead a little bit here, but the Jeep chase scene takes place in a completely different part of the park than the, than the T-Rex enclosure. Okay. But here, I, was, I, I think I could justify it. So, there is a hill. I, I'm going to die on this hill. There's a hill that <laughs> is no hill. that is be, behind the bathrooms or something, and uh, there's a there's a non-park road that goes directly to the visitor center. It's a straight shot. It's not the track that the actual cars are on. It is a, a back alley road. Or the other theory that I have, there is no hill. Okay. What really happened was the T-Rex jumped onto the concrete wall and shimmied its way <laughs> over to where the cars were. And that is why you see its talons hanging on the metal wire. It is shimmying on the edge with its tidy arms. I, I, listen, I, look, I looked up a lot of dinosaur myths in preparation for this podcast, but it did not look up the myth that T-Rexes can jump. So I'm pretty sure T-Rexes can't jump. So uh. the theory that I de- that I deposited to Luke and I believe that this is the case is that you have they shot the goat scene and then they came up with the idea of the tree, the car in the tree and thought whatever, we're going to do this is a great idea. 
And so then I said, so then I said to reconcile, so they're never going to be able to reconcile the goat issue yeah. and how the T-Rex got on there. But the issue, the way I reconciled how they got from the ground floor to, or the, the, the bottom where, yeah. where, you know, the, the very bottom to the top where Ian's sitting on the back of the Jeep is there must be behind the bathrooms, there must be like a, um, a tunnel that was cut, like a stairway down to a tunnel that was cut that goes out to the bottom. And then that's how they did this maybe they went down the uh like the 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 pipe that the, yeah. the girl goes there is into a drainage pipe. they yeah. slid down the pipe and that's how, they how would they got how would they get back up the, no, no, no 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 now it the may hill. be fair it the may hill. be fair that you say that in that pipe is the service because it they might just that might just be like the drain pipe and they might have just built in a service a ladder. service like a stairway for that but that's 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 the best this, theory. they're this, never going to be able to reconcile the fact that the t-rex got up there in the first place unless it shimmied and was able to jump <laughs> all right so, was... so you know agree to disagree uh moving moving on uh one of the th things i wanted to point out i do have an audio clip and in that scene it was written in the script that my character does what um, something similar to the lawyer who kind of just freaks out, is so frightened that he escapes to save himself. And, you know, that my character does the same thing. I said, you know, Steve, and on the day I ran it by him, and then on the day I said, maybe it might be more delicious and, and offer a little variety if I can do something kind of heroic like get the dinosaur to chase me so that it diverts attention away from Sam Neill and the kids so that they can get away. Next thing I know, I'm up there with the flare, and Jeff's there with the flare too. Ian, freeze! Get the can! That's the way we did it. You know, I had a little impact on, on that. I like that. And I really think that moment sets up the Lost World getting greenlighted because Jeff Goldblum in that moment became a hero. Uh, he already was kind of the intellectual hero, and like we said, he's kind of the main character, but that in that moment he is... A heroic character and I, I think that really sets up that's a really really movie. fair point because i i brought up to you that it didn't make sense for him to die because he's in the second movie but i do know that spielberg's studio what is it i forget what it is um amberlin that they bought the rights to jurassic park before Crichton had finished the book yeah so they so, were in on it early. so so he probably as they were in development you know jeff goldblum says no you can't kill this guy off because i need I need to be in it more. I need. I need to be. I in need it. my sexy lay down scene. Yeah, I mean my my shirt, my my whole get up, the leather. It's. Yeah. Uh, any anything more about the T Rex scene that you guys have? Because I mean, I don't want to gloss over it because it is a really masterful piece of cinema and action sequence. Should we get to the tree where the kids are? <laughs> so just to be clear, there's two T Rex scenes, right? One where he first comes crashing through the fence. And then we're going to talk about the Jeep chasing later. Oh, we can oh, talk about the Jeep chasing. Let's skip ahead because that is in the same spot. The, I love the Jeep chase scene. Fairly alarmed here. Come on, come on, come on, come on. We've got to get out of here. Got to get out of here. Now, now, right now. Go, go, go. Let's go. Hey. Start the engine. Must go faster. What I was going to say about the chase scene is 
because I, I forget completely forgot the intro to the scene. I knew that Jeff Goldblum survived, but I also knew that Laura Dern and and the hunter were down at the bottom of the, yeah. the ramp. So we've solved that with I'm the thinking, service ladder. <laughs> the like, service how, how are they? How are they going to get up in time? Like what's what's going on? And then randomly they appear in a completely section <laughs> different section of the of the road. They run into the jeep just in time to to get the hell out of Dodge. And so that part is just like the, related to what we were talking about earlier. It's like, how are people getting places? They climbed up the hill and they, they yeah. cut through the hill. No, I am telling you, there was there must be a service. We're going to have to let the listeners look, look, decide. As the, from the as opposite the, side of the road. On the opposite side of the road. As the, as the preeminent Jurassic Park fan in this podcast, I am going to say. <laughs> no. it's, it's canon. It's canon. Uh, that's a great scene, and I love Laura Dern is fantastic about being scared. But obviously, the must go faster line is great. But they're screaming their heads <laughs> off, which is accurate. And Laura Dern, I don't know what she says. She either says uh, "shit" or "shift." Shift, yeah. I think she's saying "shift," like having him shift. But it, she just is screaming "shit." <laughs> you, you have no idea what she's saying. Uh, but they they escape, which is which is great because we we get the payoff of uh, the Goldblum scene. Um, the kids are in the tree. Um, there's a lot of warm moments with with Dr. Grant. He has become the kids' protector. He's become the father figure. He's become the father figure. I one of my favorite lines is the when he finds the kid up in the tree. The kid says, "I threw up." Which thinking about me as a kid. That is exactly how I'd react. I'd be embarrassed for throwing up. Not that I was stuck in a tree in a car and was almost eaten by a T-Rex. I was embarrassed because I threw up all over myself. That just stood out to me as kind of a cute thing. I love that kid. He's so cute and not annoying, which is which is key. All right. We're moving on uh, to, again, the Goldblum, which is now it's, it's, it's a meme. At one point in London, they had a giant blow up figure of Jeff Goldblum posed in this scene. They hold it. They hold on it for four seconds of him, his shirt unbuttoned. He's sweaty. Uh, he's injured. He's on morphine, but he is looking fantastic. Mm-hmm. You, you just, that is gorgeous. I just want to know in the edit room, they were like, no, hold, hold, hold a, a few more seconds. Do you think it was maybe like Jeff Goldblum snuck in at like 3 a.m. to the edit room, put that in the night before the premiere. Yes. And then and then they got to the premiere at the the Chinese the Oriental Theater. And then as that scene comes up, Spielberg kind of looks behind him and like <laughs> Jeff, Jeff's smiling. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, you know. You know. He just he just gives a sly wink, like Yeah, that's gotcha. right. Let's get the second movie made. <laughs> Uh, uh, the, a great scene is the ice cream scene where um, Hammond is obviously distressed, but th- he's definitely delusional at this point. Yeah. Having Ned to do was a mistake. That's obvious. We're over-dependent on automation. I can see that now. Now, the next time, everything's correctable. Creation is an act of sheer will. Next time, it'll be flawless. It's still the flea circus. 
It's all an illusion. When we have control again. You never had control. That's the illusion. I was overwhelmed by the power of this place. But I made a mistake, too. I didn't have enough respect for that power, and it's out now. The only thing that matters now are the people we love. This guy is is not thinking clearly. But he also, he talks about kind of the first time he made, uh, he created a, an attraction. So this guy obviously has worked his whole life, beat all the odds, has pushed through the naysayers. But as Laura Dern says, like, you can't control this. And and that's where they realize, you know what, we need to we need to save save our loved ones and, and move forward. Do you guys have any, any thoughts before I get to Mike's breakdown of electricity? <laughs> Great. It's gonna I'm be sorry? it's gonna it's gonna be a I'm gonna need your help with this, JD. All right. So fast forward the kids are they've gotten out of the tree, they're Them, running. Uh, I'll exp- uh, let, me, let, uh, let me break it down and okay, see. You, you JD, break it down. Okay, so so JD, we understand that electricity. You know, as as men who have engineering degrees, we understand mm-hmm. that electricity is only interested in getting to the ground. Hated but, electrical engineering, by the way. Yep, me too. Yep, um, I I absolutely but, hated it. But yeah, continue. Electricity's chief goal is to get to the ground, and so the way I understand electric fence to work, electric fences to work, is that the you will only be electrocuted if um, you are grounded at the time that you touch an electric fence. That is correct. So why is the kid electrocuted? Because he is touching an electrical fence and it turns on. The only but thing... Is, he's, bridging, he's bridging two cables, right? Uh, well, that's a fair point. Oh, oh. Well, he's not grounded, but he's bridging. He's bridging. So, but but uh, explain to uh, non-engineering degree folk. So, does that not stop the dinosaurs then? So, no. What happens is what you have. What you would have is you. Electricity is trying to get to the ground. So, if if you're just standing on the ground and you touch the electric fence, electricity has now found the quickest path to the ground, and it's not continuing through the cable. It's going through you. Okay. So what does so? Let's say you t- you jump in the air. And with one hand, you grab an electric fence. The voltage, uh, it, the current doesn't go through you because the quickest way to the ground in the electricity's mind is no longer through you. It's continuing through the cable. So only mm-hmm. once the current actually discovers that you're the quickest way to the ground and the current goes through you, then okay, then you become so electric. So if the T-Rex was running up to the fence, he rammed his or she rammed his her head against the fence, but her her feet were touching the ground, she would be electrocuted. But if she was shimmying on the <laughs> oh my God. on the on the concrete, she would not because she's no, not. No, the concrete the is part of the ground. Oh. Uh anyway, the kid survives, which is amazing. Uh also, what did you guys think? I think this was always the oddest choice of me when Grant like jokes that he's being electrocuted. Oh yeah. It's kind of cruel. Like that's not the right time to be like scaring the like the kids. Yeah, there's are, enough trauma. <laughs> kids are already scared enough. I guess it goes back to he likes screwing with kids. He screws with that kid at the. Start it does, of the but movie, like remember, but... <laughs> remember, 
um, Lex is sitting is standing next to the pipe, and she's still fixated on the fact that Gennaro had left them and run to the bathroom. And he says to her, "I know, but that's not what I'm gonna do." And so now he's now he's faking that he's gonna be electrocuted, and these kids now think that this guy has left them too, and that their dad is getting a divorce. This lawyer has left them, and now Alan Grant is leaving them, and they're being chased yes, by dad. I'm glad you brought up that point, just like. The, them looking for a father figure and the father figure decides to practical joke them <laughs> <laughs> which is pretty pretty accurate to be a dad um it's interesting and we didn't talk about this at the start when the alan grant character comes up mike and i were while we were watching and i kind of brought this up i like the actor choice because grant is not like imagine if grant was played by harrison ford it's a totally different movie when it's when it's like a, a big lead character but i think it works because he's not like the macho man he's not like he's not even flirting with his his lover like he's so infatuated with the discovery with the dinosaurs and she is too for that matter like she's not yeah that's true but he's he's not our like classic bravado like save the day kind of character but i think it works and maybe that's why they are like we can't have him get too warm and fuzzy we gotta we gotta do a cruel practical joke on the kids all right, we're moving back to the crew that is uh, they're in lockdown. They're trying to figure out power and all these things. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character goes out to turn the power back on, um, and unfortunately, we find out that he is dismembered. That whole sequence is fantastic with the raptors, especially because we know there's there's a, a, like a, a queen raptor, which is a, a classic monster trope that that is is re- watching them. And they're be they're being hunted, and it's very much the most dangerous game. It's basically an allegory for that. The hunter guy is now being hunted. The humans are now being hunted by the raptors, but they make it out. Well, not all of them. Clever girl. What do you guys think about the tactics of the raptors in that moment? Because they're really. Was that is that uh, in a military term? Would that be a cat and mouse game? Is that is that what you say? Or that is like he got flanked basically? Yes, uh, I'd say I'm trying to figure. I'm trying to remember the military term for for like a bait. Um, a bait, bait and switch. It was basically like a like a single envelopment kind of thing where the the hunters kind of fixated on the on the one raptor. And then the other one comes around the side like, hey, peekaboo. <laughs> hey, it's me. This was foreshadowed in the very beginning of the movie. Oh, it was. Because when he when Alan Grant was describing to the the snob little kid, um, like how they hunt, like that's exactly what he you know, that's that was the manifestation mm-hmm. of that. Yeah, and, and it was executed. Uh I think Samuel L. Jackson, his famous line that he says twice is hold on to your butts. JD, I do, I do want to let you know because Mike and I watched this together. At that point, Mike did hold on to his butt in preparation <laughs> of the final third of the movie. Felt like it was apropos. Hold on to your butts. I guess uh, on that point of like them trying to like reset the system to get rid of the the bad code. I mean, like, what? <laughs> That's such what? a good point, JD. <laughs> like burn down the entire thing so that you can. Get rid of like this one tiny thing. Like, you're like, oh, we can't figure out what he did to the program, so we're just going to scrap the entire thing. 
I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Turn also, it all down. also, it doesn't it doesn't really explain like like bad code doesn't go away with, like when you shut your computer down. Yeah. Like because what I remembered vaguely from before watching the movie last night was like, oh, it was Nedry's fault. Like Nedry did some things to the system. Maybe they got out of hand or like they, they caused more trouble than he first expected, but it was Nedry's fault. Really it was Nedry plus Hammond being like, let's just let's just turn this whole system upside down. And he doesn't want to. He he has an opportunity to do whatever, killing the dinosaurs, but he just he says no. So Lives was, are at stake. Were more problems? Were more power? Was the problem worsened by turning it off? Well, yes. yeah, because all because, the fail because Nedry left Nedry left the electric fence of the raptor cage on. And the and and the hunter uh, Muldoon mentions that like even Nedry knew not to mess with the raptor cage. Nedry oh, only messed yeah. with the electric. Nedry only messed with the electric fences so that he could get through certain gates to get to yep. the east dock. Oh, because that was his escape route. That's he, a good point. He didn't. He didn't mess with the entire system. He only messed with enough of the system. Yeah, to, you're right. Because he did say certain systems the, will go down to get the embryos and to get out. That's uh, it. Which we did skip over that, but he is brutally murdered. Which I think is the the out of all the, like the kills, it is brutal. Like yeah, it's hard that, to watch even today. That dinosaur wasn't so. <laughs> the dinosaur, the venom causes blindness. Well, the dinosaur, the tags uh, Nedry in the face. And to cause blindness, but the guy's already out with without his glasses. Like, how much worse can it I get? I know it's just like it really. They really take him out. Like he doubled down really bad. Like and you th- and you think he's gonna get away, and then just brutally murdered in that. I mean, that is, I. It's hard to watch now. Yeah. Still, that would just well, that and- would have scared a young JD for sure. I, uh, let's be real that even if the guy made it to the dock, they, the boat would, would have been long gone. Yeah, that boat, like, that boat what, definitely left. <laughs> like he was he was selling him show. By the time he gets stuck and like he's fa- messing with the winch, I'm like, why do you even bother? Dude? Like, you're <laughs> he, done. He's like giving a pep, pep talk to He's like, you can do this. You can, you can do, do this. this. You can do this, Dennis. You can he, do this. Well, he lost his glasses and he goes, I lost my glasses. Well, I can afford more. <laughs> I can afford more glasses. <laughs> Oh, the, I love those little moments where they just punch punch up the script a little bit. Like we what, didn't need that, but it, it it works. JD, I told Luke, and this um, this would just be serving the fans, but I I told Luke that in one of the new one of the movies that they make, I would love for them to uncover the the shaving cream can, um, you know, by digging up, you know, maybe they're doing construction somewhere and they they excavate it because it yeah. got covered in that mud. And they're like, wow, Barbasol. I haven't seen a Barbasol can in years. Hey, man, I use Barbasol. <laughs> and then, and then, and then that, that would be really great. So you'd have to do it almost as they're doing it, an like a, a dig for Jurassic Park. Like it's an ecological dig for Jurassic Park. Or they're doing new construction, right? Yeah, well, yeah, if they but- had done it, it would have made sense if they were doing it in Jurassic World. Where like maybe there was a construction project going on on one of the island, on the island and... They, uh, you know, moving stuff around and some guy picks up and he's like, oh, look, I found some trash and throws it in the trash bin. <laughs> found some Barbasol. Yeah. Well, we'll have to look out for the bar- Barbasol uh, product placement if it, if it comes back. All right. Let's move on to the final portion of the film, uh, the raptor attack uh, with the kids. They're in the kit. They're in the they're back at the visitor center. They're, e- they're eating food. They're starving. And here come the raptors in the shadows and they go to the kitchen and this is a great sequence, the way it's shot, the tension, 
the kids really do a good job though i mean they they really come the, as far as child actors go yeah this is great they, in the last 12 hours they've really gotten brave and were able to be smart i love how we subtly learn that the girl is a, a hacker quote unquote mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> and she's able to find the files let's talk about finding the files to lock the doors that was the most convoluted graphic user interface I've ever seen. Yes. Like, it was excruciatingly slow. Yeah. It was like, why did you, Mike and I were both yelling at the TV, Control F, Control F. <laughs> <laughs> why do you need to go? Doo, 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 doo. Like, she was looking for the, like, that's what people don't realize. Like, when I was a kid, I didn't know what was happening, but all she's doing is looking for the file. Yeah. And the file is designed in a 3D graphic. Where she has to just scroll to find it. And, and it, again, like just like click, 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 like like push <laughs> the pushing the frames, and it, it's so slowly. It's just like hurry up, hurry up. So they are being chased by the raptors. It's a great sequence. Uh, so much fun. And then they kind of the final scene that that really we, when we first walk into Jurassic Park, the visitor center there I, are. Is, skeletons of dinosaurs attacking and the t-rex is one of them our our lead characters get cornered they're in the middle of that kind of the, the kind of the opening of the the visitor center and what comes to save the day the t-rex the t-rex the now, t-rex now it's interesting that i brought this up this point of when we go back to the hill and the t-rex the whole kind of controversy of how that works something came up in production and i have an audio clip we were so taken by how powerful the scenes were dramatically whenever the T-Rex was in them. He was like our star. That Stephen called Rick Carter over and we started to talk about how we were going to keep the power of the T-Rex alive throughout the end of the movie. He said, I've got to have the T-Rex back. And I said, well, how does it get in? Now, I was thinking, how does it get in the building? When he said was, well, Grant's backing up and the raptors are coming forward, and one of the raptors jumps in the air, and this T-Rex comes in and grabs it. And I just cracked up because he described how the T-Rex got into his movie, not how it got in the building, from the top of the frame. You just needed something like that, something like really big. So he had it all worked out to how like the you know, Tyrannosaurus would come in like the cavalry and save the day. It's shimmied. It's sh- it, you're right. It's shimmied <laughs> through the back door and snuck in without anybody hearing them. No thumping and save the day. So if we've learned anything today, T-Rexes have the art of ninja and they can be very sneaky. They can shimmy for sure. It's hard with their arms. But they can get it done. Yeah, and and the the thing about when the T Rex shows up, the 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 heroic theme is playing, and so w- me not remembering exactly how this things went, I was like, wait a second, why is the heroic theme playing? Is the T Rex somehow becoming the protagonist of this, of this? Like, forget how did he show up? Like, why is he the good guy all of a sudden? Yeah, so it's that really ends up being the case in a lot of movies. In the first one, the T Rex is the hero, and the second one, I think. Or in the third one, he is because he fights the Spinosaurus. And then in Jurassic World, he ends up kind of saving the day as well because he fights off the Indominus Indominus Rex. So it's a great point, J.D. And one of the reasons why I wanted to start this podcast is 
exactly what you brought up is the T-Rex, they have the final note. They have the final action. They are the heroes in a somatic way. They are set up as the heroes, which is very different than any other franchise to the same extent where we have very clear heroes. We have the Iron Mans. We have the Batmans. We have the Luke Skywalkers. We have those kind of hero moments, but it's not a human character at all. It is an animal and it's not a talking animal and it's an animal that was the almost the antagonist earlier in the movie. It's really fascinating, but I also think it's part of the reason why Jurassic Park kind of is this strange, unique franchise where, yes, Goldblum is amazing. Yes, uh, Hammond is a great character, but it's the it's the it's the actual animals that are the the true heroes throughout throughout the films. All it's right, true. guys, we're at the end of Jurassic Park. Any other thoughts about about the movie that we missed that we that you'd like listeners to to know that thoughts you had takeaways of the movie man i mean i just go talking through it once feels like we could talk like another three podcasts about it it's such a deep movie it just keeps going and going so so much content man mike what about you well um no I, i i've seen the movie probably a dozen times now and I always feel like I pick up something something else or I forget something about the movie. But um, I think just I don't think I've ever watched it with anybody like uh, where we're actually trying to like notice things. Yeah, it's di- different when you're trying to take notes. And so it was, it, was a, it. it was almost like I watched the movie for the first time again because, um, it you know, I've just seen it so often and I've seen it on TV. But uh, looking at. Looking at it now with like a totally different lens, it was fun. It is fun. And it, I think I talked about this in the intro episode. It's almost a perfect movie. And except for the except, except shimmying for, part. Except but, for the T-Rex, but among other things. From just a viewer experience, it is almost a perfect movie. Yeah. It is peak Spielberg. It, and the whole experience is so... It's such a fast movie, too. Like You don't realize how quick it feels as a viewer because you're just put in the action right away. The whole movie, there's always beats... You have these big set pieces and little character moments. And then, like J.D. said, the deeper moments about science, about creation, about what man should do, that all play to create this experience that is so rewatchable and you can come back to over and over again. And I think that's why this movie stands the test of time from a visual standpoint, but more importantly, from a narrative standpoint. All right, guys, we have to end the episode with with some important questions that we're going to do every episode. So I'm going to ask uh, JD to start out. What was your favorite human character in Jurassic Park? Uh, I'd have to go with, I, I'm going to blank on his name, but the, uh, the, the pa- paleontologist guy. Alan um, Grant? Yes. Just because I I liked I liked his arc I liked the, how he uh, basically learned how to be a dad on the fly. <laughs> don't don't all dads learn how to be a dad yeah, on the fly? Yeah, he even got the dad joke in there with yeah. the electrical fence. Yeah, but he learned how to be a dad within like the span of twenty four hours. <laughs> hey, that's great, JD. What what like is that someone a character you identify with, or is it just a character that you think? Uh, is just interesting to to view interesting in his progression also very level-headed like 
if if anyone was expected to take Hammond's side in this matter, you would think it it would be that character. But he's level headed and he, he understands the risks of of Jurassic Park, and he's like he's he straight up says him like, yeah, this is not an ideal place. Even though even though you are achieving my dream, this is not ideal at all. Yeah, in some ways he gives up the most because it really is his dream, and he's willing to give it up. And he's also just savvy enough. I think we didn't mention this, but when they're, the helicopter's going down, he can't get the seatbelt on, and he just ties it. And, like, and you right away you know what this guy's about. But like you said, uh, JD, he he evolves through through the film and becomes a father figure for our, our two kids. Mike, who is your favorite human character? Uh, Doctor Sattler. Uh, she's always my favorite. She's just a boss man she's is that my one of my favorite lines is uh at the end when they're in the bunker and hammond's like well i should be the one to go and she's like why and he's like because i'm a and you're a and she goes we can talk about the sexism and survival situations at a different time and i'm just like yes that is a great i'm glad you brought that because that's one of the that's like a one of the i think the only times where the movie's like fully self-aware yeah and it's a nice little nod i love how exasperated she is it's a great choice by laura dern because it's not she's like are you serious like we're like we're trying to survive the situation and you're doing this kind of crap i also love that in one of my favorite lines of hers is when ian malcolm's riffing about man 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 creating dinosaurs blah 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 he does a sequence and then she says uh Dinosaur kills man, woman inherits the earth. Yep. Which I think is a subtle nod to what's happening with the dinosaurs because they were all female. They found a way to survive and actually create their own world. So I thought that was a nice little nod to what was happening in the film. My favorite character, and I'm I actually am very thankful uh, that this is still on the board. If you didn't know, you know now, Dr. Ian Malcolm is my favorite character. Not only in Jurassic Park, but probably one of my favorite film characters of all time. Laugh aside, he, he I think he has the best lines in the movie in regards to the science, why they're doing this, why they shouldn't do this. Uh, he really gets all those really powerful lines, especially in the projector room. Yeah, it, one of the things I really like about Ian Malcolm is of how self-aware he is being a scientist. Um, there's a, there's a line, I think it's one of my favorite lines, um, that he, that he says where, um, he, he said, yeah, you've been, you've been, you've done all this, but you never stop to think if you should. And I'm like that, that, I mean, that really gets at the crux of the whole ethical dilemma of man versus nature in the Jurassic Park franchise. Oh, so true. All right. This is the next question. And the final question for today's episode what was your favorite dinosaur in Jurassic Park? JD, what was your favorite dinosaur? I mean, I got to go with the with the brontosaurus, which I guess is not a brontosaurus anymore, it's an apatosaurus. But that's for that's a different aside. But <laughs> oh boy. That and like not just the initial shot when when they're shocked and they see like how towering above that initial one is, but then when they they go out into the they they go into the landscape shot and you see more of them coming out of the water. Um, it's just that's just like that's an iconic shot, so and epic, iconic scene. And yeah, I I mean like people like T Rex is cool, which it is, but also tiny arms. 
So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the the tiny arms, it's 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 rough. It's not the the, the brontosaurus has a has the long neck. Well, I love that. That's great because it's kind of a, the soft and nurturing character throughout the movie. They have that little scene in the tree, but also, like you said, the epic shot. Mike, what yeah. was your favorite dinosaur in Jurassic Park? I love the raptor, even though we know that that's not what raptors. Well, I guess we don't know, but ba- but most the most recent and up to date science and findings would say that that's not at all what raptors looked like. They are much shorter and potentially are covered with feathers. Um, Hell but, yeah! But the um, I think that the uh, the way that the movie has chosen to depict raptors is just fun and interesting, and um, yeah, it's one of those characters that has its has a personality. It's a, it's one of the dinos- it's one of the only dinosaurs that has a personality in the movie and I think that's cool. Well, that leaves me with uh the most iconic character in the movie, the Velociraptor. The T-Rex. Oh. It's on the it's on the it's <laughs> the T-Rex. Obviously, I have a soft spot and I I you know that the T-Rex even with its tiny arms is still <laughs> able to shimmy and attack the lawyer. And attack the Velociraptors and save the day. It's the hero of the movie and the hero of Jurassic Park. Any final uh, thoughts, gentlemen, as we we leave Jurassic Park in our helicopter and Alan Grant looks at the birds and says, my theory will stand because I just saw a bird. Uh, any other parting thoughts as we leave Jurassic Park? Uh, final thought is the one of the other iconic lines throughout the movie is they don't those dinosaurs don't look like birds and uh mike made a great point dinosaurs had feathers i'm in that camp 100%. you are whoa that hot take hot take you are in the camp of, of the alien grand camp of birds and dinosaurs being shared mike sorry snowflakes that's just how i feel <laughs> mike what about you any any parting thoughts as we leave on our helicopter our engine helicopter I just always think it's so cool. Like the movie is just so fun to watch. And I think that, I don't know, it's just a movie I don't really get sick of. And so I'm just, it was just fun to watch it again. Well, I'm going to leave us on the note of the notes of John Williams, who we didn't mention, but uh, just is kind of the butter that just makes this whole thing work. It is just, his score is always iconic, but keeps the movie driving along some would say it's the best score he's ever had Ooh, hot Ooh, take we might need to do a take. separate that is, that's john, a controversial take yeah there. john williams episode jd thanks for chatting with us on our first episode talking jurassic park thank you for your service uh hopefully you are not brought into a situation where you have to deal with any dinosaurs or space dinosaurs in the future but thanks for chatting with us uh we really appreciated it who knows? That's above my pay grade. <laughs> and we will. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we will chat. Up next is the Lost World. The Lost World, and we'll chat about that. Uh, more gold bloom. Secret guest. Secret, Secret guest. Guest to, to come. Guest to come. <laughs> Two, um, 
Dig up, dig up dinosaur.